And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. For two decades, Amy Walter's been a bright light in the world of political journalism and analysis. She's become something of an institution in Washington, but she's never been a subscriber to the sometimes smothering conventional wisdom that's so prevalent in that town. I sat down with her this week to talk about our current politics, her life and career, and her recent appointment as editor-in-chief and publisher of the Venerable Cook Report, which has for years provided some of the smartest coverage of politics and campaigns in our country. Here's that conversation. Amy Walter, newly minted editor-in-chief and publisher of the Cook Report, which is a Washington institution. Congratulations, my friend, on your ascension to the throne. This, <laughs> Thank you, David. This, this uh, institution that Charlie Cook built. He uh, built it. He had the idea of it. Explain the idea of it. Yeah, it's a gr- that's a great question. So you have to go all the way back to 1984. I, I won't tell you how old I was. I was alive. So let's be really clear. About I know that. how old I'm you are. Like, I'm, looking, I'm looking at a memo here. With all the <laughs> you, you know everything. Yes. But, um, and, you know, you go back to that era and look, obviously you still had campaigns and campaign donors, and but you didn't have a, the sort of referees in the way that we think about them now, right? Somebody coming in and being a, nonpartisan arbiter of campaigns and elections to say, look, this, these are the races that are real. These are the races that aren't. I know you're getting spun by all kinds of people about this person or this race or what's happening big picture wise. I'm just going to tell you what it, what's really going on. And I'm going to build up the sources on both sides so that, and, and, and sort of cut through all of this um, noise to give you the, the real unfiltered, unvarnished truth about the campaigns and elections. And, um, you know, it's, it started on basically an old fashioned computer, which wasn't old fashioned then. <laughs> um, but if you've seen the original Cook political reports, they came out on paper and they were really that again the first of the co- the first of its kind of of trying to to assess and make sense of campaigns and it was a labor of love for charlie he loved politics he still loves politics he's still in still going to be involved in uh in the analysis business but um being able to do it from a perch that wasn't partisan was really a a new idea back in 1984. Yeah, there have been a lot of uh, imitators since, but right. it really was a trailblazing thing. So is that computer now on display somewhere? Is it in the Smithsonian? I think it's the Smithsonian. It should be. I think he's t- t- had it around still for a while. You know, like one of those, I don't know if it was actually the kind where you had to put the cards in it or something. Or but, crank it up. You might have had, it or, might have yeah, had a crank Yeah, maybe on it. with that hand handheld <laughs> crank. 
Yeah, it was it was not exactly uh, the most powerful instrument uh, out there, but it's where it started. And now here you are leading the thing. I'm, I'm going to tap your analytical uh, savvy later in this discussion, but I know you know you're a very familiar face to people who follow politics because you know you've done you're on TV all the time. You you have uh, you you do broadcasting. Uh, on radio podcasts. Uh, so people know who you are, but I don't think they know much about you. Uh, and um, I didn't, you know, I, we've been friends for a long time. There's stuff I didn't know about you. I did know you're from my neck of the woods here. I am. Talk to me about growing up in the suburbs of Chicago. The suburbs of Chicago. My parents moved out to Chicago in the mid sixties. They're both from New Haven, Connecticut, and my father moved out with my mom. They were married at the time uh, out to California. He went to business school out there, but was looking for a place to come and work. He was in um, finance, didn't want to go to New York. So Chicago was a good place yeah. Greatest to city sort of world. go, right? Yeah. 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 He was a money manager. Basically, he was at that time managing pension accounts, right? So for corporations and nonprofits and things like that. He was your classic, David, you appreciate this, the guy who would get up early, get on the Chicago Northwestern, take the train. From where the where, where, where specifically did you live? In Barrington, close to Arlington Heights. Yeah. You know, I know that train line very well, all the different stops between there and, and downtown. Um, but it was, you know, your, your, your classic sort of suburban life that I led. And also because my parents were not native Midwesterners, we did not have the attachment to the place that many of my friends did, right? Who all their cousins and their families and the, the connection there. So it was a lovely place to grow up, but I did not feel like it was sort of an ancestral home. Mm -hmm. And where, and your mom, did she work outside the home or? She did not. She was, you'll appreciate that she was the White Sox fan in the family. I think usually they're the Cubs fans, right? But you know, both of my parents grew up in very working class families in New Haven. And I think her identity with that is what connected her with the White Sox, right? The White Sox are the South Side team, the working class team, and the Cubs are too bougie at right. Those aren't my that's she not my scope that out even then, huh? That's she knew that even then, right? Of like, okay, these are and I think and she also is, and I I get this too, you know, she she loves the underdog teams too. Right? Everybody loves the Cubs. Nobody's given any love to the to the White Sox. And so to be there, I think I was in high school. When, when was it that they went to um, the AL White championship? White Sox, 1983, uh, 84. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that was a big. Well, big you're, the Cubs have, uh, they're in a play for more love. They've traded all their stars away and made them. <laughs> I saw that. So that is good. And was politics, was that something that was discussed in your home? Was that a, a big thing? No, as I said, my mom's attachment to to that sort of working class identity and to really, a, she's Catholic, a real Kennedy 
East Coast Democrat. That's really, if you want to give her politics. Meanwhile, my dad was a Reagan Republican, loved Reagan, just. As did a lot of people out in Barrington. As did a lot of people out there. That was very Republican out there. I'll, I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. But so my mom likes to take credit for what I do saying, well, you know, you grew up in a mixed marriage. And so, of course, you understood very well what it was like to have to navigate between these sort of two warring factions. They didn't really war about it as much as my mom would just take glee in going to the polling place after my dad had you know, left for work and she would go later in the afternoon and cancel out his vote, right? That's what she would come in. And she loved being the one person in Barrington who would pick up the Democratic ballot in primaries, right? Because, you know, nobody was picking up that ballot back then. Um, So they would sort of, you know, they they had that sort of uh, their own uh, political differences, but it wasn't like we were a political family. Nobody was really engaged at Uh, at a level beyond that. But I think when I really became interested in, in politics was going off uh, to college and, and to meeting uh, folks who were doing this business. And I was like, huh, I never really thought about this before. Campaigns, elections, seem interesting. Let's try this. Colby College in Maine, huh? David, you've been up there. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And a, an old colleague of mine from the University of Chicago, David Green, is the president of Colby College. Now, an outstanding, uh, outstanding guy. Before we leave um, yes. high school, Barrington. Um, first of all, do you do you, did you have siblings? I do. Yep. My uh, I'm the oldest of three, so I have a younger brother who is now in. Baltimore and sister who is in Colorado. So we were, we're, we're quite the, um, as I, as I said, because we didn't really have the like roots in the Chicago area. Uh, we have now all sort of gone our separate ways. Mm-hmm. And um, you're gay. Mm-hmm. And how did that evolve in terms of, you know, when did you come out? How did your, how did all this go? Yes. Yeah. And with your folks and my father died pretty young. He was uh, 50 and I had just graduated from, yeah, I just graduated from college and my brother was in high school. My sister was uh, in college. Was that a sudden thing or? It was an absolutely sudden thing. Before you go on here, yeah, that must've been, I mean, I, I lost my dad, you know, when I was young and it was a sudden thing, uh, yep. but that must've been, incredibly unsettling and jarring and sad it was in a in a destabilizing way that and you can appreciate this too david you know at the time uh i do i remember people kept saying to me oh he you know he's so young and when you're just graduated from college right 50 seems like so old what do you mean he was young he was my dad's 50 right but um but just that you uh uh, you you can't really process all of that for what it means for somebody who really is um, at the you know at fifty you're in a prime of your life. You when you're a kid you don't appreciate what that means. And then also being at that time of your life as I was, which which blends into your question, 
you know, you're leaving school, you're trying to build your own life and identity. And, you know, I was living in Washington. I had felt like, okay, here we go, taking these steps to figure my way in the world. And then to lose a parent and feel like you're lost again, right? You're kind of swimming in this. Did you just get a call? Is that? It was like this. I still remember this so well. Again, this is all pre, so this is 1993. This is all pre cell phones and Mm -hmm. right. And running to pick up the phone. And you know, right, David, when you get those calls where you know instantly something has happened, right? You, they don't have to, they just say one word and you're like, I know something bad is going to come next. And so that feeling of like, right, the, the, the disbelief of this, this can't be possibly happening. I, I'm not supposed to deal with this Trust now, me, right? I, I remember so clearly my own experience. Yeah. Don't you have, do you still have that memory in your head? Like I still have that picture in my head. I remember I ran in the door, the door, the phone was ringing. I ran through the door and I didn't even close it because what I expected to do was pick up the phone and say, can you wait a second? I need to close the door, right? But then to be sitting on the floor with the door open and just collapsing is like still such a powerful memory. What happened to your dad? He had, it's called an aortic aneurysm. and. I don't know if you know about those, but the problem with them is that they appear more like a flu symptoms because what's happening is your aorta, right? You have a a leak Mm -hmm. in your heart and it's the blood that is slowly pooling. And so you feel weak and you feel achy. So you don't, it's not like you have a sign of, oh, this is a heart attack, right? It feels like, ugh, I just feel terrible. And he did to his credit, he went to the hospital to say, this doesn't feel right. And they didn't diagnose it. Oh my. And so he came home and it is a very challenging thing to that aortic as because you have to catch it pretty early on. Yeah. And I think in fact, Bob Dole might've had it caught early. Is that what Richard Holbrook? I don't know. That's a he was good in question. My office the day that he died, he was in my office at the white house and he looked terrible. And my then assistant, now state senator Eric Lesser, you know, offered him some water, and because we were so worried about him, then he went off to the the State Department and died during a meeting with Hillary Clinton. It's really one of those things that they again. I know that um, you think about a fifty year old man is right. Uh, a heart attack would seem not out of the question, but because this doesn't pose any of the same symptoms. Nobody would, right? Yeah, it comes suddenly and... It's slow and then sudden. Yeah. Right. So that was... And then, you know, to have my brother still in high school, so the two of them had to sort of navigate that um, by themselves was also, um, you know, such a difficult thing, right? Of the, You know, I think for the three kids we each were we were at such different phases in our lives um and such prominent um or whatever i don't know prominent's not the right word but just as at at such critical stages of development and junctures right so i think how we each have sort of processed that and how it has impacted us is is probably going to be different but we were all in a 
younger phase of um, of our lives. And what about your mom? You know, she is now, I think, in a really good place. She's retired. She moved to South Carolina. And it has been a long process. And I think she has found a really good community of people who, in this place where she's retired, who have been incredibly supportive, um, who didn't know him, right? So they've known just her. And I think that's also sort of a fascinating way to think about this, right? Of uh, uh, There's something about when you lose someone, you do want to be around people who knew that person, who can constantly remind you of that person. And at, at the same time, going somewhere where people just know you as you, as this person that you are now, not what your life was before. So I think I haven't really talked to her about that, but I, I do find that, I wonder how, how that balance has been for her. This discussion was part of my question about you. Mm -hmm. and, and right, all the co coming out. And so it was really, again, I think, boy, what would that process have looked like had my father not died at that point? Because I really had only started coming out to myself at the end of college. So, so, and so I graduated in 91 and he died at the beginning of 93. So, and it talked to anybody in my family about this, right? This was still a, I'm figuring this out for me. And at some point it was going to be, let's have a family discussion or, you know, bring the family into this. But now here it was where we're in this period of grief and this was not the time for me to make my story a prominent one for the family, right? It was, I need to do whatever I need to do, but it's, uh, I'm not going to make that a thing right now. You said your mom came from a working class Catholic family. Right. So how did she receive that? Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> I would say <laughs> it wasn't like awful. It wasn't the, you know, a, a, and it's funny to think about too, like how different it feels just even having these conversations like this in the early nineties versus right. Yeah. Today, absolutely. it's an entirely different place. And, and it is true that the church is very important to her. And I think that tension was there, right. Of what to, what to do with that. And that people didn't talk about their gay kids back then, right? If you did have a gay kid, you were just, you just sort of moved on and talked about something else. Now, everybody, right? Oh, I'm going to the wedding. We have a baby. We have, so it has been, let's just say it's been a process. But I think that for me, the process was also really important. And I think, this is true for a lot of, of gay folks, again, especially those who were doing this at a time when there weren't like gay pride floats um, yeah. sponsored by big corporations, right? Where everybody now yeah. has friendly day, which is you were really forced to trust yourself, right? Like there is something that I'm just going to take as super important. This is me. This is important. And I'm getting all these outside 
pressures telling me to not do this or to not think this or to not be this, not but be I'm going to trust myself and not be myself. But I, I, I have got to do this. I've just got to trust this and to take this really deep dive into yourself and into what's important to you and what matters to you. And I think that gives me, it was a really good experience. Again, especially being in your twenties when you're so unsure of everything. Yes. Right? Who am I? What am I doing? Why am I here? And to have to go through this process really forces you to take stock of the things that matter, but also to say, okay, I just went really deep into myself. I know who I am, what matters to me, and I'm going to fight for that, right? I'm not going to give up on it. I think that was, again, I, you know, everybody's has their own struggles, but it's through those things that you find out really what matters and who you are. So in that sense, I think doing it at that age was a, was a really, it was, it was fortuitous. And it was a time too in DC, you know, where there was a, I would say there was a vibrant gay community, but it was still pretty quiet and segregated. And so, you know, you sort of built up friendships and relationships that were so different from the world you were working in or your professional life, right? Now they're much more integrated, but that was the different part. When you consider social progress, the, the movement he, in, on, on gay rights and just, as you say, the integration of, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of uh, gay and straight and so on, uh, breathtaking. Uh, unbelievably breathtaking. How, how, yeah. how fast. And, and, you know, now you've, you've got, uh, you're married to your long, long, long-term partner and you have a child and, yeah. uh, and think about one thing this virus has done is it does make you think about the things that are most important and, um, and, you know, family, friends. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You arrived in Washington, not as a journalist, not as an analyst, but as a participant. Uh, You went to work for the the Women's Campaign Fund. um, And this led you to uh, a short-lived tenure as a campaign manager in one of the most (laughs) momentous congressional races of, of, of the 90s. Um, Indeed. Yeah, talk, talk about that. And one of the other little-known facts about that campaign, so this was 19, in the, as you said, 1992, 1993, at the Women's Campaign Fund, the women runs for Congress in suburban Philadelphia, Marjorie Margolis-Mosminski, wins in former news reporter for local news in Washington. She married a congressman from, from Iowa, who, by the way, was one of the Republicans who voted uh, to impeach or to investigate Nixon, right? And he uh, and she had kids of their own. 
but also had multiple children through his yeah. first marriage and then she had adopted children so she has this sort of fascinating story and i was just really drawn to her i went up when i was working at the women's campaign fund and helped out on the campaign and met her press secretary there this guy named jake tapper yes um who had uh, had just graduated from college as well and his father was the physician to the mesvinsky family so that was the the connection there so um so yeah get you know it was this remarkable win on her part it was the year of the woman in 1992 this montgomery county pennsylvania which now is overwhelmingly democratic but at the time was old line republican machine uh area she wins by a couple thousand votes year of the woman in part because uh the anita hill exactly uh, clarence thomas uh hearings happened in 1991 i guess yep and yep. this just ignited a reaction from women and particularly suburban uh women but women uh, nationally anyway go on with your narrative but you're exactly right and there were record number of women that won in the senate as well and so i went and uh worked for her in, on the hill for a year and then went up to manage the campaign and she became famous or infamous however you would <laughs> want to describe it uh in 1993 uh then president clinton trying to pass feels all familiar doesn't budget reconciliation right we're we're kind of going full circle um which includes I pass a tax increase a tax increase and on wealthy people this is the main line of Pennsylvania. This is one yeah, of the wealthiest counties wealthy in America. There. A lot of wealthy people. I mean, you know, it, there were a lot of things that you could do as a Democrat in Montgomery County, especially on social issues, but do not pass a tax increase in this county. She said she wasn't going to vote for it. She had voted for the first round. It came back after conference. She still said she was going to vote against it went on the news at six o'clock that night, Philadelphia saying she was voting against it. She gets a phone call from President Clinton saying, I need you on this. She says, only if I'm the 218th vote, which you probably shouldn't do because then the White House says, great, we got her, <laughs> right? Yeah, like we just, fine, we'll have you as 218. Now in fairness, most members of Congress would say, as long as I'm not the 218th exactly. vote. Exactly, because I don't want to be the, one the deciding vote yeah she becomes the deciding vote uh she and um i remember the scene and you Pat do williams too. right do you remember yeah. that scene yes where they're all waving bye-bye marjorie uh and you know it was like she is walking dead it was like walking into a it was like a roman amphitheater like with the the screaming and the lions and it was just um and she and and i remember it was pat williams back when montana had two members of congress uh who walked together and cast those votes and uh the campaign of course then became not just a referendum on tax cut but that she said she was going to do one thing right i'm going to vote against it she went washington yeah right the president calls her and she says we, we should point out just parenthetically that her uh, son uh, married chelsea clinton so now she's not only did she <laughs> help pass the tax but she's part of the family now she's literally part of the family i will say yeah. this 
that was a courageous, courageous vote. I mean, you know, you measure uh, uh, courage in politics by whether people are actually willing to put their principles on the line and risk their careers uh, for a principle. And that tax cut, that tax increase was part of what propelled uh, the economy forward and the country forward. Uh, it helped uh, lead to balance, a balanced budget. And uh, so, you know, I, I look back at her with great admiration. Uh, but, you know, she also did say she wasn't going to do it and she did it and right. she paid the price for it. And they sent this young kid in there to run the campaign. <laughs> it's like, well, who's going to take this assignment? I guess we could send her. Right. Yeah. Oh, yay. Go up there and and have people yell and scream at you for eight months about why she's a traitor. I was in the same position you were in that I went over to work for Paul Simon, who ran for the Senate in Illinois in 1984. And I would I left the newspaper business to work for him. And next thing I know, I'm the campaign manager. And uh, there were moments when I said, how the hell, what the hell am I doing here? What am I doing here? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And especially when, you know, it's a nationalized race, right? It's not all uh, eyes were on that race, all eyes on this versus there are plenty of 25 year old campaign managers out there, right? And they're running congressional races. But when it's this is now taking on more than just are you going to win this race? It's what does this say about right? right? So that must have been really stressful. So it's stressful. I think, thank God, it was pre-Twitter. It was pre-internet. It was all yeah. right. So the nationalization was not as intense as it is now, right? Um, it really, you know, it was a big deal when a CNN reporter cut, comes up and national news is still focused on it, but it wasn't in the way it, it could be now. So yeah, that was that was a year uh, of my life that I, I won't get back. But it was um, it was good, and like they say, uh, you know, it was good experience. Glad I had it, but it was yeah. um, it was not uh, totally in, enjoyable. Mostly because you are you're just you're you're swimming against, and you could I mean you've been in these races, Dave, but where you just feel like you're swimming up against a tide that. And it was beyond just. And it wasn't just that district. Vote. I mean, look, the, exactly. that was the year that Newt that was the year Republicans seized the House, and uh, yep. it was it was a it wasn't a tide. It was a tsunami. Yes. And you were on the wrong side of that tsunami. What What did you learn from that uh, about yourself and about politics and about what you wanted to do with your life? And yeah, that's a great question. So you know, I came away from that thinking, I, I don't think I wanted run another one of these <laughs> again. I know some people come away from doing that experience and there's the adrenaline and the, you know, even though you lost, this was a whole lot of fun. It was, I, you know what I really came away from it? I really enjoyed the people that I got to work with. And, uh, you know, obviously the people on the ground I worked with, um, with whom, David, you know this, right? You now have a friendship for life, right? Once you're right. in yes. the that kind of battle, you're going to know each other and, and, and be with each other forever. Uh, but I also appreciated uh, the consultants we worked with and just getting to see that side of it, I was really uh, intrigued by and I really enjoyed it. But it was also like, uh, all right, it's November, I don't have a job, 
oh gosh, yeah. now what? Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I do think that it'd be helpful if more journalists actually had that experience. Okay. So, yeah. Can I riff on that for a minute? Please. Um, because I agree with that. Now, I get the whole, you don't want to have, if you're, if you're going to come in and, and present yourself as nonpartisan, to come in where you've had years of, you know, time spent with one, just one party makes it difficult to say that you're truly nonpartisan. But I will say this, I, you know, again, 25 years old, spent two years working there. Um, and what it helped me understand wasn't an, the ideological piece of this or the partisan piece of this. I have now an empathy for what it takes to be a candidate and to be on a campaign. Um, and I think that's what's missing from so much of the political journalism, right? Of, you know, there, the cynicism is so deep. And it's, this is also why I love House candidates and I covered the House and I love the House because most of these people, they are just like your normal people, right? You're the local dentist or the city council person that all of us know. And they wake up one day and they're like, you know what? I can, I can make a difference, right? I'm going to go to Congress. And they have flawed, you know, things about their life that are flawed and they have goofy family members and you have the, you know, crazy kitchen cabinet that, you know, <laughs> calls you at three in the morning, giving you ideas for a campaign ad. Yeah. It is, it is not what it's made out to be in the movies or in our popular culture that these are all craven people who are here just to promote their own, uh, you know, diabolical agenda. Yes. Well, you know, you've lived in that echo chamber of Washington for a long time. And I think part of the skill demand of being really good at what you do is the ability to look beyond that, to listen to what's going on in the country. And yeah, there are all kinds of admirable people who are just trying to trying to contribute and do something around this country. Um, yeah. And they shouldn't get, we shouldn't be so cynical uh, about that. We should be grateful that people are willing to step up and, uh, exactly. and, and serve. Um, you, you talked about covering Congress. You did a stint with the trial lawyers and you, you stayed in the political realm. And then in 98, Charlie Cook came along and offered you this gig uh, in Congress. And you arrived at Congress to cover Congress at a pretty momentous time there. That was the impeachment year. There was turmoil in the Republican ranks. Tell me about parachuting into that whole scene. You know what, David, I look back at that time now, the period between 98 and let's call it 2008. Yes. And it was really stable, right? I mean, what you had was a very narrow Republican majority in the House that they were able to hold on to through, you know, from 95 through 2006. And um, you just didn't see these big changes. Maybe that's not the right word, but it was, it was, it, it was much more stable. Although I would argue that the election of 2000, all of the disquiet over that and the fact that yes. the election went to the Supreme Court, the, the, the pall that cast over 
relationships uh, in Washington and and around the country. Uh, you know, it hardened some of the partisan divide uh, that dis- dissipated a little after 9-11 and then the war, uh, the decision to invade Iraq uh, kind of intruded again. So, yeah, I mean, compared to now, um, yeah. I think it was that's uh, compared to now, a lot of things look more uh, more stable. You you had a succession of uh, jobs. You were you succeeded Chuck Todd at the hotline, which was a, which was kind of a, a, a one of the Cook Report sort of uh, successor or imitators or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you did a lot of broadcast uh, jobs, um, uh, including you. You were the political director at ABC. Um, talk to me about that and about the experience of broadcast journalism versus uh, versus a more traditional print style journalism. Which Cook Hotline they have their own flavor their own of it, but it was more right. traditional journalism. Yeah, and it was more. Um... Obviously, both Cook and Hotline are more insidery, right? I mean, that that is is for a very niche audience, right? So I had been writing for and speaking to a very niche political audience, and then I had to go at ABC, and now you got to talk to you know three hundred million people about politics, and most normal people um, don't care about politics <laughs> the way we do, David. And so, how do you make the um, how do you talk about it in a way that um, it's not just appealing to people, but makes makes it um, approachable? And and you had to think every day about well, why why should we, with a very narrow amount of time that uh, broadcast news has, right? You've got half an hour, which really, once you get commercials and everything like that, we're really talking twenty or so minutes. Um, why should it make it into this? Um, why should what you're obsessing about your, uh, you know, sort of little insular political world, why does that matter? Um, so that was a, that was a really important experience to be able to talk beyond just a niche audience that, to, to try to figure out ways in which what we do, what politics is at its core, right, is its, its impact on on regular people. And I got there for two really interesting moments. One was the 2010 election where, right? Yes, I remember it. The you don't have to go into detail there. I still have the tire treads on my back. <laughs> and um, and it comes so quickly on the heels of, right, the 2000, this is what I meant about things being so stable. You know, we went from 1954 to 2006, the house changed twice from 2006 to now, right? So obviously a much shorter time window. It's already flipped three times with a good chance of it flipping again. So to go from, you know, 2008 and the, you know, Democrats' success and then it gets flipped in 2010. And then to go to a race where, David, you know quite well, the 2012 campaign was so different from 2008, right? And I think, right, you go from, historic and you know right that the, the long battle between hillary and obama and the primary and sarah palin and all of this and then it ends up a pretty kind of boring <laughs> re-election campaign i know from your part it wasn't boring but um 
it certainly did not have the drama and interest of 2008 and obviously ever since then 2008 was hard it was but it was a magic carpet ride in a way 2012 was a grind you know yeah, yeah. we were That's running for re-election yeah. and we're still recovering from this uh, epic economic crisis uh, people were unhappy uh, the organized opposition that ultimately evolved into trumpism was more evident um you know there were forces at play that were uh, roiling our and it was just a grind yeah but it also gave me the opportunity i mean this is where the networks still have so much opportunity to do stuff that you know i could never do at a smaller publication or or even at a print publication which is uh you know the debates being able to have a yes platform there to have a budget to be able to go do all the things like Talk get on the romney people. get yeah and get on the romney plane be on the right so it really was uh i i think you know again all of these different jobs have given me an opportunity to see politics campaigns elections from these different vantage points which i think is so important and as you pointed out starting off working on campaigns obviously a lot has changed in 1993 i mean our biggest our biggest breakthrough technology we had i remember this so well on the campaign in 94 was you could blast facts yes that was a big deal you could send out one fax to hundreds of people yeah same time that was that was it so obviously a lot has changed but the basics remain we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files And now back to the show. You left the network. You've been a hybrid ever since. You've been doing broadcast along with the Cook Report. You became the national editor of the Cook Report in 2013. Yeah, the, the prodigal daughter is what I, I call <laughs> it. Is um, yes, I've seen the other side, and and here's what I really like to do. But it, it really was that, which is seeing politics from all these different vantage points and recognizing that, look, what I really love to be able to do is to, to, to stand sort of outside of it and really look critically at both what is happening, sort of the national trends and the bigger story, political story, as well as the individual campaigns and races and, and what we're getting from that. And it's hard it's hard to do that. It's hard to find places that do that, that aren't sensationalizing, that aren't all about chasing the shiniest object or trying to make the pithiest point on Twitter. Um, and which is also why I love working with PBS and the news hour. And because we have time to do that. They, I get yeah, yes. eight whole minutes every Monday, eight minutes. That's a, that that's, unheard of you also said something interesting you said you you learned a lot about the art of interviewing from watching judy woodruff mm. who yes. i who i think is is sensational uh just so good tell me what you took away from what you've taken away from watching judy that's such a great point because again i know we throw this word empathy around and i think sometimes we misidentify empathy as being soft right? It's like a soft art of being, oh, 
they're there. Yes. Um, really what empathy is, it's an ability to be, to be curious. It's really yes. curiosity. And to be curious about somebody's point of view. So instead of going in, in, into an interview with three million people have been killed under your watch, why are you so terrible? Yeah. <laughs> right? It's, can you tell me how you're thinking about this? Tell me why you're doing X, Y, and Z. Bringing people in in a way that is, it's, again, it's not that you're not critical. It's not that you're not pressing people, but it's the way in which you ask the question, which says, I am curious. I am truly, honestly curious to hear your perspective. The question is, are you authentically interested in the answer? Yes. Are you trying mm -hmm. to find out what motivates people or are you just trying to put points on the board or bring yep. to it your pre preconception as Correct. to what the news is, what the answer is? Yeah, no, she's, I think she is really one of the very best at that. It's one of the reasons why I thought her debate was maybe one of the best debates uh, in 2020. I thought she had one of the most thoughtful debates. So I want to just take the balance of the time to talk a little bit about where we are and tax that big analytical brain of yours. Last night, there was an election in Ohio that a congressional race in the Cleveland area. Nina Turner, who had been the chair, I think, of Bernie Sanders' national yeah. campaign, a very outspoken progressive versus Chantel Brown, who was a local Democratic official and county office holder. And this became sort of a surrogate battle of gargantuan proportions with AOC and Bernie going in for Turner, um, Jim Clyburn, the, uh, uh, the venerable uh, number three Democrat in the House and the guy many attribute Biden's primary success to and so on, going in with the Congressional Black Caucus uh, for Brown. Uh, Brown won a race that Turner was... Uh, leading by a wide margin at one, on one point. What happened and what is the meaning of it? First, going back to the most important thing, right? Candidates and campaigns matter. So I do think um, that the fact that what this election really, it wasn't simply about the fact that um, Nina Turner was an outspoken progressive. She had been outspoken in her attacks, I guess you would say, on Joe Biden and on Hillary Clinton, the two people who actually did very well in yes. the primaries in this district. This is exactly. a Biden district. This was a Hillary district. So again, if you're going to be an outspoken opponent, that that is fine, but this is not the <laughs> Don't district pick popular that is. Targets. Exactly. They are not resident of that. Let me just interject. Go ahead. Yeah. I think Clyburn and those folks very wisely made this a referendum on either you're with Joe Biden or you're against Joe Biden. Yep. And right. that's so smart. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I think to say this is, look, this is the Joe Biden party. The split screen though, that was fascinating, David, what though was at the same time, this is a, a quote unquote win for the establishment for the Biden wing of the party coming on the heels of Eric Adams in New York, who, said i'm basically i'm a biden democrat um the, the the not progressive candidate in the new york mayor's race terry uh, mcauliffe in virginia not exactly a liberal firebrand obviously part of the establishment yes. more more centrist wing of the party 
At the same time, this is happening though in Ohio last night. Progressives get a big win on an, the eviction moratorium yeah. by by one of those members of the so-called squad um, making a uh, basically a protest and getting getting the Biden administration to move her way. So you could argue that yes, the Biden wing is is alive and well, and at the same time, the influence that Sanders, AOC, and those members have on policy and the direction of the party is still significant. You know, one thing that it revealed, I think there's there's so many presumptions about American politics that are just wrong, but they have great, um, you know, they they have a great hold. One is that the African American voter mm. is, you know, a far left voter, uh, and that is just not true. The, you know, the core. Uh, African-American vote, uh, particularly among older voters who tend to be the core African-American vote, uh, is, is, you know, yes, they're progressive on civil rights issues, uh, but generally they're, you know, they're, they're, they're moderate to conservative on many other issues. And, you know, B- Biden dominated that vote. That's the story of 2020 in the primaries that 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 is misunderstood and 2016 right i mean hillary clinton's success with yes. african-american voters also this real story the other big story yesterday was uh governor cuomo and the report that came out in new york uh how does this story end i mean this is obviously a guy who does not is not particularly interested in being out of office <laughs> um he's not going to be shamed I mean, he's, into he's resigning the most uh, pugnacious Yes. Person in American politics. In American I mean, politics. I mean, I yep. think they're gonna have to bring the jaws of life in to get him out of that governor's. I man. think they're he's daring the assembly to, to impeach him was what yes. it feels like to me. Yes. And unless they do, he's not going anywhere. And then that begs the next question, David, which is who runs against him in a primary? And the one name that has been out there for the longest is the state attorney general, who also is the person who brought this report to right she was the in charge of yeah. the report which Cuomo has made that point repeatedly uh, in, insinuating now we should point out he was the guy who asked her to exactly he asked her to do it right so this is not like she took this on upon herself to give herself an opportunity to go yeah. and you know w- yeah. win this uh primary but it it is a um look I, I don't think that this has broader implications say for midterms or for the democratic party um democrats have been across the board the entire delegation the president uh, you know all calling on um cuomo to resign so this is not one of those so it puts you know the party in a pickle to have to defend um cuomo at this time i just think the bigger question is for new york politics which is its own share of brutal who's next after Cuomo in terms of who's next in terms of the, the hierarchy, who who um, would become a governor. And if you are the lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, uh, you know, she becomes the governor if if indeed he is impeached. And that yeah, would be out, that, that interesting to watch. Automatically that she doesn't. That's right. I mean, as soon as he is impeached, he has to vacate. Uh, That's right. The but then she would be. But and the, she's the acting governor, acting governor through, which is another thing I haven't really thought about. It's a mess. Let, let, let's say that. And interesting, that's another bit of social progress because uh, 
you know, would have been much easier to ride this out some, some time ago. Listen, let's just finish up with this. One of the things I appreciate about you is that you are sophisticated in your analysis, but you're not cynical in your analysis. And when I read your stuff, I see someone who actually has reverence for this process. And um, as I do, tell me about your level of concern about where we are now in terms of our democratic institutions, uh, because things have happened in the last few, you know, I admit to being naive. I never thought we'd see a president. I mean, I lived through Richard Nixon. This, you know, uh, Trump did things that would make Richard Nixon blush. Uh, and, um, and now, he, uh, you know, there are tools that Nixon never had to manipulate uh, uh, our politics. H- how do we get out of this? How do we re- revive and renew our system? David, like you, I, um, I think about this a lot. And also it's why I like you so much, because you can be critical without being cynical. You can be analytical without being well, I can't use the word I would use, but without being a jerk uh, to other people, right? Like you can, you can, uh, you know, uh, you don't, being a, a you're uh, very approachable because, and, and I think that that's why you get all kinds of people to come and sit down and talk with you because again, you're not in this to score points. And unfortunately, this is sort of what our politics has, has devol- have devolved into. Um, I think about two things. One, the incentive structure um, is part of a big part of the problem um, that you are rewarded for um, blowing things up, not for building things. You, yeah. you, the, the, the most prolific fundraisers are the ones who get themselves on every sort of social and other media. And look, I feel like, again, if we, if we sort of go all the way back to where we started this conversation, Back when we had, uh, you know, in the in the olden days before Twitter, and you had three networks telling you what the news was, and you had party leaders in Congress who had a tremendous amount of power in determining who was going to make it and who wasn't. If you were a team player, you got rewarded with great committee assignments. Those committee assignments got you money. That money got you, you know, your incumbency protection. All of those have broken away, which leaves us feeling like we are sort of swimming in a sea of, uh, uh, of dysfunction. Um, at the same time, I don't think that somebody like me, who being female, being gay, would be invited into a lot of those rooms. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, only because we've sort of blown up that system do we have new people and new voices and new energy in this process. So there, that's a good thing. But with it comes all of the destabilizing. I'm also reading this book, I'm only starting it, but it is sort of fascinating where we talk about the the lack of faith in our sort of traditional institutions. At the same time, we are now putting our faith still into people and to things that are just different. Like the thought 20 years ago of me getting into a car driven by a stranger, right? The level of, of faith that goes into that is kind of remarkable. Putting my credit card on the internet, I wouldn't have thought 30 years ago that that would be impossible. So so the trust is there. It's that the institutions are going to look different. I do think that it is not about one person. It's about having, again, having the 
the, the, the sort of public incentive is for people who are willing to, to do the work instead of just getting the glory. And until that changes, that's going to be difficult. Do I think we're on the cusp of something? I don't know. I feel like this is the thing about tipping points, right? In history, you just, you never know yes. where you are on that. Are we on this? Which side of the tipping point are we? And are we going to look back 20 years from now and say, oh, well, that was rough, but it was pretty clear all along where this was headed because I don't know where it is it is headed right now. I think it is very dangerous to live in a time where we are living in two Americas who have two very different sets of beliefs and priorities and where the inequities about the economy and where the growth is are so stark that of those, right? As you point out, two very different sources of information or misinformation. But um, listen, I I so appreciate you. uh, And I neglected to thank you at the beginning for being a great fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, a board member of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and uh, a great... uh, uh, a great provider of light at a time when we need it. So, uh, uh, Amy Walter, it's, it's always good to be with you, my friend. Thank you. This was really fun. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.